please remain standing for the reading of God's word. But first pray with me. Oh, blessed Father, thank you for your word, your grace to us as you sustain our faith and you point us to the finished work of your son and the good news that he bears our burdens, fulfills the law, and has been risen again for our justification. Be with us now, we pray, and bless the reading and teaching of your word. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the, to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So how do you know that you belong somewhere um, when you're dating someone? Maybe for the first time, and you go over and you meet their family. How 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 do you what what do you need to say and do to make a a good first impression? Or what about in a, in a job interview? How do you how do you make a good impression to prove that you you belong there? Or what about when you go to a a, a new school and you're a freshman? How do you know that you belong? That you fit in? Um, at, Everyone has to be a freshman at least once. We have to go through that crucible of being the new guy, the, uh, the rookie, the greenhorn. Um, you arrive insecure, perhaps, unsure how you fit in, how you measure up. Uh, but then you, you know, you're around a while, you get the hang of things. Uh, you learn some of the inside baseball, the jargon, the lingo. Um, and finally, somehow you pass some kind of initiation rights, whatever those are, and you're in. You belong, perhaps. You, uh, you get the approval of your f- future in-laws. Uh, you become an upperclassman who knows the ropes around the school uh, and, or, or the workplace you're, uh, you're new to. You're in. But when it comes to the people of God, how do you know that you belong here? What things do you need to say and do? What rules do you need to follow? Whose stamp of approval do you need in order to be in and feel like you belong? In Matthew 23, Jesus Jesus has answers to these questions. He also has scathing criticisms for how we tend to answer these questions. I don't have much of a structure for this uh, sermon um, but I do believe that as we look through this passage, we'll find a few things. We'll find that we see through, through Christ's t- 
teaching here that our deeds um, cannot exalt us and help us feel like we belong, and the world cannot exalt us and help us that we uh, uh, feel and belong, but Christ can exalt us. And I think we'll see that our need to belong, our need to be accepted and to truly be exalted is not wrong, but it's ultimately found in Christ. So, um, I don't know if you've heard from teachers in classes, usually we'll say things like, there's no such thing as a bad question. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think there are bad, bad questions. Uh, perhaps you've experienced that when you've raised your hand in class and you asked a question and suddenly they're responding to you in a very condescending way and you're realizing that must have been a, a bad question. Um, well, there, there are such things as bad questions. If, if, if you're hosting a party or a small group at your home, perhaps um, you've thought of um, maybe preparing icebreaker questions um, for, for your guests. Now, uh, people have strong opinions about icebreaker questions. I don't know if you know this. Uh, it's true. Some people really love icebreaker questions, you know, things that are like, you know, what, what's your favorite book or movie? What's your favorite Thanksgiving dish? Okay, now some people love these question games, some don't, they're a hard no, but the whole point of icebreaker questions is that uh, they're, 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 they're curious questions, they're harmless. Bad, but they're a bad icebreaker question is something like, hey, you know, hey, nice to meet you, has anyone ever broken up with you before? It's not a good question. Do you have any vices? That's also not a good question. Uh, What's your opinion about masking in COVID lockdowns? Not a good icebreaker question. Don't lead with that. Um, Questions can actually be kind of malicious, can't they? Um, Shrewd journalists will often ask politicians questions in a way that tries to reveal the politician's ignorance or uh, hypocrisy. And lawyers are forbidden to ask certain kinds of questions during a trial, which is leading the witness, right? It's a form of questioning where the attorney would ask questions in a way in which it puts words in the mouth of the witness. And see, in uh, the previous chapter, in Matthew 22, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are are seen to be asking Jesus a bunch of bad questions. They set out to lead the witness. They want to trap Jesus. They're not curious to learn anything about Jesus, or they're, they, they, they're not curious to learn anything from Jesus. They're not opening themselves up to his teaching. No, they're trying to expose Jesus in front of others as a fraud or a rebel, depending on his answers to their questions. The religious leaders are threatened by Jesus, and so they want to trap Jesus with a string of questions. They ask, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? In all the law, which is the greatest commandment? If a widow has had seven husbands, who will she be married to at the resurrection? Terrible icebreaker questions. After Jesus answers these questions, he asks one of his own in chapter 22, and it ends, chapter 22 ends by saying, from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's the setting we're entering into chapter 23. It's a little tense. Now, the Pharisees have a complicated 
interesting history. Not all Pharisees are the same. Nicodemus is a Pharisee who had his life turned around by Jesus. In Acts 5, there's a character named Gamaliel. This is a teacher of the law who was honored by all people, it says. And he advised the men of Israel who were persecuting the disciples. He says, leave them alone. For he says, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. So not all Pharisees are the same. Um, So we shouldn't read this passage as if we're seeing two-dimensional villains. But Matthew is recording something distinct for us. He, is, he, he records interactions between leaders who are threatened by Jesus, who test Jesus, similar to how Satan does, and who are comfortable in their place of status and influence. Jesus is confronting these people who act hypocritically in their office in their leadership. Jesus has shrewdly outmaneuvered the questions of the religious leaders in Matthew 22 and chapter 23 starts in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Jesus goes on in chapter, uh, in this chapter, to give seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites seven times. They tried to trap Jesus. They tried to expose him, but they get caught up in their own game. And Jesus now is exposing them. They sit on Moses' seat. They teach the law, but they misunderstand the law completely. For them, the law is miscellaneous. A random list of binding statutes. But as we see in Jesus' teaching, the law is not random, arbitrary rules. It is a cohesive whole that shows goodness and justice. It points us to how we are to love God and love neighbor. And that is antithetical to the teaching of these religious leaders. Much of the religious leaders' teaching is correct and legitimate, but it's full of hypocrisy. And their vision of the law especially is burdensome and oppressive. They're ignorant of justice. They're ignorant of mercy. And they're ignorant of faith. And Jesus says still, he says, do everything they tell you. But then he says, beware not to do the works that they do. This isn't a a contradiction Jesus is deliberately exaggerating here. The statement gets across that the leaders themselves fail in the responsibility to teach Moses and the law, to teach the faith to God's people because they're so close to the truth that they handle every day, but they won't believe it. They won't live by it. Their office, though, is legitimate. Their work to teach the law is, and the prophets is legitimate, but he warns not to follow the patterns of these leaders. And by turning to the crowds and the disciples, the warning is to us as well. There's something in us that makes us drawn to something here that we'll talk about. But Jesus is giving you and us a warning. He says, be warned. Do not practice and follow after these leaders. 
By misunderstanding the law, these leaders, in verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by others. This gets back to my initial question, which is how do you know that you belong somewhere? See, we love to make new litmus tests of acceptability. We love to separate ourselves from others and figure out how to feel superior to others. We don't always know that we do that, but we do do it. There's a great podcast that I uh, recommend. Uh, It's a history podcast called The Rest is History. Two English historians host the podcast. Um, delightful and fun to listen to. Recently, they did an episode on the English public schools, or bo- boarding schools. You know, the, uh, the kinds of schools in England where children are sent away to usually some kind of castle in rural England. They wear uniforms. There's a headmaster. Upon arrival, they're picked to join a house or club within the school, and those houses compete amongst each other in various competitive uh, games. Lots of English novels depict this kind of school experience, most famously Harry Potter. Um, now, these kinds of schools very purposely have a, uh, have a s- um, series of dense rules and regulations, English boarding schools. Kids are usually taught a bizarre and impenetrable code that outsiders cannot possibly understand, but which works to bind the pupils together in a kind of community separate from the outside world. They, right, they have to wear blazers at all times. Uh, they have to, and if they layer their, their, uh, their, their dress wear, they have to layer their shirts and watches and sweaters and ties in a very certain way, and they follow a very strict regimented schedule every single day. All the rules and insider language and slaying of these boarding schools is very much intentional creation, a part of the people who created these board, boarding schools in the 19th century. Um, Monty Python, uh, if you're Gen Z, you'll have to Google what Monty Python is, but Monty Python um, used to make fun of these dense and impenetrable rules of boarding schools um, all the time. In one skit, the actor John Cleese is portraying a boarding school teacher. He walks into the classroom. He says, now students, before I begin the lesson, will those of you who are playing in the match this afternoon move your clothes down onto the lower peg immediately after lunch before you write your letter home if you're not getting your hair cut, unless you've got a younger brother who is going out this weekend, in which case collect his note before lunch, put it in your letter after you've had your hair cut, and make sure he moves your clothes down onto the lower peg for you. If you're not getting your hair cut, you don't have to move your brother's clothes down to the lower peg. You simply collect his note before lunch after you've done your scripture prep, And then, when you've written your letter home before rest, move your clothes to the lower peg and then greet the visitors. It's it's rather absurd. Um, But these rules and regulations in boarding schools work to subsume the individual into the collective life of the institution, right? How do you know that you belong at the boarding school? How do you know that you fit in? You keep the absurd rules, 
You memorize them. You speak the slain, the insider jargon, the lingo, and you even perform them better than your classmates. That's how you really know you belong. And listen, we love to make litmus tests, new litmus tests of acceptability. We love to separate ourselves from others and figure out how to feel superior to others. Um, This is an obviously absurd example, but this happens everywhere you go. You go to a new school, it happens there to some degree, clubs, cliques, friend groups even, definitely political affiliations. You notice this, right? The, uh, in the progressive and leftist world, there's an endless competition of how anti-traditional you can be, how anti-status quo you can be, how much of an ally you can be in certain respects. According to this group, the average American family of a husband and wife and two kids is not actually average. There's nothing normal about them. They're just a cisgendered heterosexual couple with children. And unless they are proactively educating their kids in leftist sensibilities, they are perpetuating the hegemony of colonialist heteronormative paradigms. How do you do? How do you know that you belong here? Well, there's a dense set of rules and language to follow and appropriate, and if you use it, you're kind of in. Not so fast, though, right? The anti-woke far-right circles, similarly, have their own use of language and rules. Uh, How do you know that you belong there? You cut ties with any conservative Christians who do not denounce encroaching secular trends with the same zeal and passion as the loudest and most noxious voices. What matters most here in this world is not orthodox subscription and confession. No, 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 no. What matters here is if your speech, your dress, your car's bumper stickers, they must loudly combat leftist trends with intense language. Your language can't be nuanced. It can't be sympathetic or dispassionate. That would be politically correct. If you bring up issues of race in America, you're labeled woke, you're kicked out of the club. You must give yourself over. Your language has to be given over. Your dress has to be given over. Your personality, your disposition must be subsumed in the collective group you want to be a part of, and then you can belong. We love to make new litmus tests of acceptability. We love to separate ourselves from others. But it's especially dangerous and heartbreaking when it happens in the household of God. For the Pharisees here, the law, the practice of religion itself, has become a means to distinguish themselves from others. They've turned, turned it into an impenetrable and dense rule book used as a way to feel superior to others. They exhibit oppressive leadership. They're heavy-handed in their prescriptions for people who want to belong to their tradition. The law of Moses is already hard, but now they pile on more. They don't care about the burdens of the people. They only love themselves. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Phylacteries are small, uh, usually small, leather boxes that you would put scriptures in and the phylacteries would be tied around your forearms or forehead during prayer. They made those boxes just broader and broader and broader. Look at these phylacteries. Look at how much I'm praying. The fringes or tassels, um, uh, these are mentioned in Numbers 
they're given to Israel in Numbers 15, and they're meant to, uh, to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them not to fo- and not to follow after your own heart or after your own eyes. And we're not sure what size the Pharisees' fringes and tassels are here, but, but, but they're used to increase the image of piety. It's all about their reputation. It's all about how much they stand above and are different and distinct from others in, compar- in, in comparison to them. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by others. It was, um, it was the custom to greet superiors in public with titles in the first century. It was honorific. It showed honor. It's one thing to accept honor, but it's another to, to revel in it, to love it. Rabbi means my great one. Um, it's used for older men of re- repute. Father was used for elderly men, known for wisdom and scholarship. Um, these customs are not really are not 100% being forbidden by Jesus here, but Jesus is critiquing the way these customs are being used. See, everyone thought the Pharisees were the best. And Jesus says, no, they're, they're not the best. Jesus is also not saying that morals and laws don't matter. No, he, he, he's, he's giving us new categories to evaluate things when the covenant community becomes self-obsessed, when it becomes consumed with competitions of self-glorification. If only I was as pious as they were. If only I memorized scripture like they did. If only I followed the rules that they prescribed to my life, then I would I might be more successful, I might be more satisfied and happier than I am. We love litmus tests, and we love leaders who heap the law on us at times. Don't we? Right? We grovel after voices who market to us pres- pres- prescriptions for what to do in every inch of our life. Tell me what I need to do to be good. Tell me what I need to do to have meaning. Tell me how to ha- run a perfect home. Tell me how to, how to have perfectly obedient children. Tell me how to have a great sex life and how to win friends and influence people. Tell me what to do. Tell me what I need to do to, to belong, to have meaning. But here's the thing. No matter how much you give yourself to following practices of your preferred in-group or voices of influence that you want to be respected by or you want to be a member of, it'll never be enough. You'll never be left-leaning enough. You'll never be right-leaning or anti-woke enough. These groups and their gatekeepers tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The problem is that we run after these burdens in strange ways, don't we? We love leaders who give us marching orders about anything and everything, and we love following things if it means we're, we, we, are, we get to dis- distinguish ourselves from, from other, and in that, find some meaning and purpose. In his essay, The Inner Ring, C.S. Lewis writes about the phenomenon of becoming initiated in a new group or clique. 
He says, by the, by, by the very act of admitting you to the inner ring, it has lost its magic. Once the first novelty is worn off, the members of this circle will no more be, will no more be interesting than your old friends. Why should they be? You were not looking for virtue or kindness or loyalty or humor or learning or wit or any of the things that can be really enjoyed. You merely wanted to be in. And that is a pleasure that cannot last. As soon as your new associates have been staled to you by custom, you will be looking for another ring. The rainbow's end will still be ahead of you. The old ring will now be only the drab background in your endeavor to enter a new one. And you will always find them harder to enter for a reason you very well know. You yourself, once you are in, want to make it hard for the next entrant. Just as those who are already in made it hard for you, naturally, your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is of the essence. We love to make new litmus tests of acceptability. We love to separate ourselves from others. But as long as we are governed by that desire, you'll never get what you want. Lewis says, you're trying to peel an onion, and if you succeed, there'll be nothing left until you conquer the fear of being an outsider. An outsider, you will remain. See, at this point in his ministry, Jesus gives judgment to Pharisees and scribes, but um, not only to them, also to us. Jesus has revealed himself to be the Messiah, uh, the son of David. But the leaders have rejected him. And because of their unbelief, he condemns them as being guilty. They appear righteous, but they are far from God. They have sought pride and vainglory, the admiration of others, through the outward appearance of religion. And be warned, Jesus says. Don't be like these so-called great men. Why? Because the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Our deeds cannot exalt us. Whatever we do to gain acceptance cannot give us what we truly desire. The world and its groups and its traditions cannot exalt us. So what can? Who can? exalt us. The abuse of authority in our lives or just in history um, might lead us to think, right, well, we, we actually just don't need groups. We don't need in-groups. We don't need authority figures. We don't need institutions. Forget it all. I can define myself and be authentic, maybe live by my own rules and be rid of this pressure to gain acceptance. Alan Noble, professor uh, and writer, he says, commenting on this, he says, there's a tension here. You can find it all over our culture. On one hand, there's a pull of autonomy. I am my own. Only I can define myself. It doesn't matter how other people see me, only how I see myself. But, on the other hand, there's a pull for recognition that is inherent inherently a part of identity. 
People must acknowledge me for who I am and see me how I desire to be seen. A teenager listens to music that reflects and expresses her personality to other people, even though the lyrics are explicitly about rejecting the judgments and opinions of other people. A middle-aged man wears a shirt that reads, Only God can judge me, but clearly wants you to judge him based on his shirt. We strive to independently define our identity, but we are always dependent upon others for the recognition of our identity. We are shaped by the logic of the attention economy, our attention to ads, apps, articles, images, videos, trending topics, and so on. When your identity requires a public recognition and affirmation, you can never really stop expressing yourself. No person is significant enough to permanently ground your identity with their gaze or approval, although we sometimes allow ourselves to think so. Particularly, right, when we're young, insecure, infatuated, we can easily imagine that if, uh, you know, if only he or she would, uh, would only look at us approvingly, then we'd feel secure as a person. Later in life, we might imagine a career or artistic achievement as the definitive grounding of our identity. But it's never enough. So if we abandon the church, we're left with the same problems, with the need to belong, with the need to have some kind of stamp of approval, with the need to ask, how do I know that I am on the right path? What do I need to do? See, we actually do need to belong. We need to be accepted and seen. We need to be truly exalted in a biblical way. But we can't find it in the patterns of the world. We can't even find it in the righteous appearance of religion and its trimmings and trappings. So Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus says here. It makes no sense unless he is the Messiah. Unless he is the eternal son of God who in chapter 16 of Matthew asks his, his, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus an, an, answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for blessed for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is the Son of the living God, who, make no mistake, is not just a shrewd and wise teacher who knows how to deal with bad questions when they're asked to him. He is very God of very God. He was seen by his disciples in Matthew 17, it's transfigured before them in resplendent, shining glory. His face shone to them like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. This resplendent and glorious son who was in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit in eternity is the one who humbled himself who took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Matthew wants us to see that Christ is truly the one who is 
humble who has humbled himself. He doesn't just sit in the seat of Moses and teach the law like the Pharisees. Heck, he knows Moses. He can talk to him. No, he doesn't sit and teach about the law. He does not tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on your shoulders, being unwilling to move them with a finger. No, he fulfills the law. And he says to you, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But following after Jesus... It's not easy. And if you do, the world will hate you, Jesus says. You'll be an outsider to many in-groups. But his burden is light. Following him while dying to yourself and carrying your cross is light. It is. Why? Because the, wor- the world can only give you Sisyphus's boulder. A burden that you endlessly strive in. A boulder of impenetrable and dense rules and requirements that you endlessly push toward the top of a hill that ever evades you. A burden that says no amount of vainglory and admiration is enough. You need more. No amount of affirmation from the circles of influence you bend over backwards for is enough. You need more. No amount of statutes and repute. No amount of status and repute is enough. You need more. And obedience to these laws will contort you in ways that you won't even be able to see. You won't even be able to realize the absurdity of it all. It will consume you until you are nothing. But hear this, Christian. The cross of Christ is your exaltation. The cross of Christ, the humility of Christ, is your exaltation. When we are found in his death, we will also be found in his resurrection. And we will be made glorious and resplendent If you try to fashion your glory, it will be contrived. It will rob God of glory, and it will be absurd in many ways. But if we entrust ourselves to the Lord, if we lean on him in faith, we will be transformed and made as he is. So we're being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. To humble yourself means that you know who you are. You have the self-awareness and realization that your works cannot satisfy and redeem you, that the status and success that you can try to achieve or fail to achieve cannot be all there is. You just, to be humble, means that you know your need for Christ. It means that you know your righteousness You can't achieve it on your own. You need his. So care not for the burdens of this world. Care not for performing the rites and rituals and laws of this age. They're fragile anyway. 
They can be shaken and taken away from you and leave you helpless and robbed and insecure. They're not the path of your exaltation, but Christ's humility is. Lastly, church, all church authority is instructed of God. It's not heavy-handed. It's long-suffering. It's merciful. Sometimes when we think of uh, good leaders, strong leaders, we think, right, who would be ideal, right? Who would really, really be ideal? Who would really stand up to you to the encroaching secular trends around us? Who would really whip us into shape and, and, and help us get to the next stage that we want to be at? But all authority is entrusted by God and must be characterized by grace, humility, and the love of Christ. The Lord is the head of the church, and he's, 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 given, he's given to you officers uh, to the church in love for your growth in grace. Good leaders should help you know that you belong here, not if you do everything perfectly. They should let you know that you belong here, not for what you do, but, be, but because of what Christ has done for you. You belong here. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. You belong here because Christ has died for you, because Christ loves you, and Christ wants to free you of your burdens. This passage contains judgment on poor leaders and warnings not to follow after them. But positively, it also tells us that we need good leaders and pastors in our life. You know why it's been difficult to be without a pastor? Because you need one. We need shepherds in our lives. You need a preacher. We need someone outside of us reminding us to let go of the burdens of this world and to be conformed instead to the humility of Christ. Christians depend on somebody else to give them, to give us this, because it's just not going to bubble up inside of us. Our hearts are drawn to habits and forms of the world. Our hearts are drawn to make religion and piety into a game of status, of procurement, of reputation. We need someone to help strip those temptations away. To remind us that in humility, we will find exaltation. In the humility of Christ, we will find all that we are looking for and more. So let our desires and our affections, our vision of what is good and honorable be shaped in this way. Let us heed Christ's word and cling to him in faith. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not heap burdens upon us. You did not only lift a finger, but you came and left glory. We're wrapped in flesh, taking the form of a servant, being obedient to death on the cross for us so that we could belong and be adopted into the family of God where our works, our failures, they do not define our identity and who we are, but now we are found 
in, in your righteousness. Help us to cling to you by faith, we pray. Bless us now, bless this church and all that they do so that may, they may grow into your grace and that we all individually may grow from one, deg one degree of glory to the next. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.